puppy yesterday we, we went they went for a walk that was sick all day the monthly migraine one and uh, they went out and uh, she usually wants to go for very long walks but yesterday apparently she decided she wanted to come home really really early and she just wanted a very short walk and then the mice decided to come in the bedroom I don't know what they were doing and where because I didn't even know right from left I was pretty dizzy and tired and they were scaring her and so she kept up and down for a bit I was pretty tired I was like I can't even stand up I was so white so but I kept having these weird dreams and part of it was this damn book 1984 it's hilarious like my mind was totally playing with it <laughs> and then I would wake up like crap it's a dream again <laughs> and I had to go pee all the time now at least it was better than having to barf which was the day before <laughs> so much fun <laughs> I mean yesterday <sighs> yeah, like last night was way easier than the night before. Look at her, she's crazy. But the weather has been really wild, and so I know that's also why this is happening. It's really making, it's triggering. Ultimately, when you're, you know, when you're attuned well, it doesn't bother you, but that's the whole point. It's really hard for most people to be well attuned when they've gone through certain things in life and if they haven't had a chance to recharge somehow and also work them out. So it takes a toll on you. What you eat definitely does and smoke and drink and breathe or whatever. But the energy around you is so important I would say it's hard to have good energy with people who drink a lot do drugs and real drugs and all this stuff like the more polluted you are the more nasty you'll be probably and when people are in physical pain 24 7 you should try it it'll drive you insane at some point so anybody you know will go nuts so you know, what would a guru do, right? <laughs> so usually if people don't treat themselves well, they also are pretty nasty to be around. But that's learned, right? So... That's where it, it'll be interesting to see. And the reason why real gurus eat very clean is because the cleaner you eat, the higher energy frequency you'll be. So it allows you to be the best. You can be that's the whole point is like you know live life at the best of your abilities and it's you know a ladder so a lot of people when they start they they keep comp comparing and stuff and real gurus don't compare ever you know like ever and uh, when you compare it's because you judge and again it's all that stuff right so it's all included in that that's why to make it short we just say if you have nasty negative thoughts feeling whatever then tap on it and do it until you don't and then you know you can go into the higher mode and then from there it's easier to actually believe and feel and do the things so it's no longer you acting you are actually feeling it and that's where the change occurs but i mean people may have to fail fail quote-unquote many times before you know and it's challenging for everybody so we'll have some fun here it'll be fun i know for me it's, it's like i can't help it but crack jokes all the time and a lot of them sound mean, but that's because they don't understand how a real 
when there is some truth but you exaggerate it or you bring it to a point where it's just comical that's the kind of thing I like and I really it really makes me laugh to my bones so it's it can be perceived but gurus however they always joke they always crack jokes so it's how you crack the jokes my jokes are really not usually meant to dig they're just meant to have a good laugh however sometimes <laughs> they can sound mean because if someone doesn't know the contest or doesn't know me they can sound mean because sometimes they are very angry <laughs> but that's the whole point is that <laughs> it's kind of far from who I am. I make fun of myself when I do that because my younger self, my inner child, always is the one. When she comes out, she's the bitch because she's like, go fuck yourself. Why do you need to be a mean asshole? You know, because she's from a child perspective, you know, like you look at it and you go, I get it that you've had a bad life, but how does being an asshole to someone else make it better for you? And that's where she comes from, because she has not been a real jerk herself yet, and so she doesn't understand how it is easy to be a jerk when you're in pain a lot, when you've been treated badly, when things have always gone bad. There's all kinds of reasons why people do it. So that's where the perspective changes, right? But if you, if you haven't healed those parts of you that are causing this you know inner child to pop up and tell you hey there's this thing is not quite resolved yet that's what it is really then you'll keep having these reactions right gurus don't react gurus act they are always in alpha they're always in theta and when they flow out of it they gently bring themselves back it's this dance that happens and when you're around them, honestly, it make everybody feel better. Like, if you're really that low-frequency energy, I think they still make them feel better. They have this thing where it's insane. It's this uncon... but it's real. It's not fake. Like, a lot of them are so fake, and you can tell. You can feel it. If you are someone who is sensitive to energy, you know the difference. It's automatic. It's like... My body cringes when I'm around fake people, and it's not because I just can't stand it. It's like with cowards, people backstab you. I can't stand it, you know? Like trolls, idiots like that. Me, I'm like, I fucking. I'm the person who goes there and puts them in their place and says, now shut the fuck up, you know? Go learn your lesson. And that's not what gurus do, right? Like, that's why I always say, I ain't a guru, because if I was a guru, I would be like them, and I'm just not. When I see assholes, I put them in their place. I don't enjoy it, but I do it because someone's got to do it. And nobody seems to have the fucking, you know, interest in doing it, apparently. They all want to appear as all loving and accepting. It's like, no, when you see someone doing wrong, you stop them. <laughs> and that's it. And that's how it goes. And sometimes public humiliation does instill in them if they're really rotten deep down and they're not going to become half decent because they don't have empathy then at least you instill in them that each and every time they'll do that they'll be publicly humiliated and they'll stop because most of those people care about not being publicly humiliated so you know it's what you gotta do and that's not what a girl does <laughs> that's not what a girl does no. no they're all loving all accepting you know oh yes i'm sorry you're having them they don't even react it's just it's and they're the real thing, no, not those fake ones, you know, that pretend. It's a whole different thing. Like, anyone else doing certain things they do would piss you off. Because you know it would be more. From them, it's not. Because they're actually doing things from truly a higher perspective. It's... And they have their own bullshit still. But they work through it. They've learned to work through all their crap in a positive way. And that positive way is not fake. It's real. It's just they've reached a level of understanding. And 
I don't know how else to describe it. When you will be around it, you'll know. You'll have your own version anyway on this story. So, with that in mind, and the fact that I've been kept up by this book, damn it. <laughs> it's much more fun when you read books in the language they were written, I find. I don't know. It's a whole difference. That's why it pisses me off sometimes there are so many languages, because we miss so much in translations. And, let's face it, most of us don't have a chance to learn all those languages because of circumstances. It's not to say it's not possible, it is, we can change that, but right now, the way things are, I mean, most people can barely survive the way, you know, they are, so. And for languages, a lot of people need concentration, I mean, if we were exposed to them all the time, like, it's easier now, really, because if you use Netflix, for example, or those kind of things, you can listen to the language, you can read it in your language, you can do the opposite. So you can use the captions and stuff at your advantage. And because it's a story, there are emotions attached, your brain will actually remember it better. So it's one of the best ways to learn languages. If you just want to learn the colloquial, you know, and just get your wet, your feet wet. But if, when you read the writing and stuff, it takes time to actually learn that sort of finesse, I think, that comes with learning a language in the real way, not just, you know, yeah, like, you know, you can have a conversation, but it's not the same as having real common to it. And it's just most people, most likely, will not reach that right, in these lifetimes, but who knows, I'm open-minded, who the hell knows. So, it would be nice if uh, these things were, you know, being available like 50 years ago and stuff, things would be a lot easier, you know, in school and shit, learning languages. I used Anglo-Tutor to learn English because it taught you how to read um, phonetics and then, you know, it will teach you English based on that because English is so different than Italian. Italian, when you see things written, you read them as it's written there. If it's a double, you have to make it sound as a double. So there is not, it's not like French and other languages where you have to stop and think about, oh, am I gonna pronounce this letter or not? No, Italian is easier in that way. But then Italian has all these nuances and this, you know, little, um, well, all the verbs, first of all, the tenses, uh, we have more than French. And that's why, like, French, in a way, it's not that hard for us to understand the grammar, because it's very similar. We don't have all those accents in the same way. You hear them when we speak, so most accents. And, you know, there are exceptions, yes, but our grammar, um, at least, in, like, it's sort of consistent. English is like, wow, what a mess of everything. And... Uh, you know, it's really hard to learn on, on books, right? So some languages are better to learn, like Latin and German, you know, they're very orderly. You can learn on books first, but English, I think it's easier to learn as you go. And when you start learning things better, then you can enjoy things for real, because, you know. So that's why, personally, I thought to myself, you know, a lot of these books I read in Italian, and many years ago, some of them. So, and then I didn't have a chance to read them again. I was tired, and it was difficult, you know, after you work 12 hours, and you're always fighting around people who are unhappy and always stressed. It's not easy to focus on this mundane shit, right? It's not shit, but you know what I mean. And so, you know, I was thinking this would be good, actually, to... We read them also from a different perspective because when you're older you have way different outlook on life and understanding and you know it's just fun so anyway my brain was having too much fun with it because all these crazy dreams was like holy man what the heck is going on here why is it you know going so nuts over this so i thought i would read a chapter and you know just um do that for a bit. So we're gonna start reading the chapter. <laughs> Alright, so 
We are reading 1984. We are in the third part of the book, chapter 2 now. So He was lying on something that felt like a camp bed, except that it was higher off the ground and that it was fixed down in some way so that he could not move. Light that seemed stronger than usual was falling on his face. O'Brien was standing at his side, looking down at him intently. At the other side of him stood a man in a white coat, holding a hypodermic, hypodermic syringe. Even after his eyes were open, he took in his surroundings only gradually. He had the impression of swimming up into this room from some quite different world, a sort of underwater world far beneath it. How long he had been down there, he did not know. Since the moment when they arrested him, he had not seen darkness or daylight. Besides, his memories were not continuous. There had been times when consciousness, even the sort of consciousness the one has in sleep, had stopped dead and started again after a blank interval. That was my interiors saying hello, apparently. But whether the intervals were all days or weeks or only seconds, there was no way of knowing. With that first blow on the elbow, the nightmare had started. Later, he was to realize that all that, all that then happened was merely a preliminary, a routine interrogation to which nearly all prisoners were subjected. There was a long range of crimes, espionage, sabotage, and the like, to which everyone had to confess as a matter of course. The confession was a formality, though the torture was real. How many times he had been beaten, how long the beatings had continued, he could not remember. Always there were five or six men in black uniforms at him simultaneously. Just like true cowards. <laughs> Sometimes it, it reminds me of hunters, actually, in that way. But what would the guru say? They cannot help themselves. Sometimes it was fists. Sometimes it was truncheons. Sometimes it was steel rods. Sometimes it was boots. There were times when he rolled about the floor as shameless as an animal, raising... <laughs> his body this way and that in an endless, hopeless effort to dodge the kicks and simply inviting more and yet more kicks in his ribs, in his belly, on his elbows, on his shins, in his groins, in his testicles, on the bone at the base of his spine. There were times when he went on and on until the cruel, wicked, unforgivable thing seemed to him not that the guards continued to beat him, but that he could not force himself into losing consciousness. There were times when his nerves so forsook him that began shouting for mercy even before the beating began, when the mere sight of a fist drawn back for a blow was enough to make him pour forth a confession of real and imaginary crimes. There were other times when he started out with the resolve of confessing nothing, when every word had to be forced out of him between gasps of pain, and there were times when he feebly tried to compromise, when he said to himself, I will confess, but not yet. I must hold out till the pain becomes unbearable. There, more kicks, two more kicks, and then I will tell them what they want. Sometimes he was beaten till he could hardly stand, then flung like a sack of potatoes, onto the stone floor of a cell, left to recuperate for a few hours, and then taken out and beaten again. There were also longer periods of recovery. He remembered them dimly, because they were spent chiefly in sleep or stupor. He remembered a cell with a plank bed, a sort of shelf sticking out from the wall, and a tin wash basin, and meals of hot soup and bread and sometimes coffee. He remembered a surly barber arriving to scrape his chin and crop his chair, his hair, and business-like, unsympathetic men in white coats feeling his pulse, tapping his reflexes, turning up his eyelids, running harsh fingers over him in search of broken bones, 
and shooting needles into his arms to make him sleep. The beatings grew less frequent and became mainly a threat, a horror to which he could be sent back at any moment when his answers were unsatisfactory. His questioners, his questioners now were not rough, <laughs> ruffians <laughs> in black uniform. God, that word. <laughs> but party intellectuals, little rotund men with quick movements and flashing spectacles who worked on him in release over a period which lasted, he thought. He could not be sure 10 or 12 hours at a stretch. Well, all this energy is spent to create pain. Crazy people. Whoa, the guru said. These other quest questioners saw to it that he was in constant slight pain, but it was not chiefly pain that they relied on. They slapped his face, wrung his ears, pulled his hair, made him stand on one leg, refused him leave to urinate, hmm. shone glaring, glaring lights in his face until his eyes ran with water. But the aim of this was simply to humiliate him and destroy his power of arguing and reasoning. The real weapon was the merciless questioning that went on and on hour after hour, tripping him up, laying traps for him, twisting everything that he said, convicting him at every step of lies and self-contradiction until he began weeping as much from shame as from nervous fatigue. Sometimes he would weep half a dozen times in a single session. Most of the times they screamed abuse at him and threatened at every hesitation to deliver him over to the guards again. But sometimes they would suddenly change their tune, call him comrade, appeal to him in the name of the Ingsog and Big Brother, and ask him sorrowfully whether even now he had not enough loyalty to the party left to make him wish to undo the evil he had done. When his nerves were in rags after hours of questioning, even this appeal could reduce him to sniveling tears. In the end, the nagging voices broke him down more completely than the boots and fists of the guards. He became simply a mouth that uttered a hand that signed whatever was demanded of him. His sole concern was to find out what they wanted him to confess and then confessed it quickly, before the bullying started anew. He confessed to the ass assassination of eminent party members, the distribution of seditious pamphlets, embezzlement of public funds, sale of military secrets, sabotage of every kind. He confessed that he had been a spy in the pay of the East Asian government as far back as 1968. He confessed that he was a religious believer, an admirer of capitalism, and a sexual pervert. <laughs> he confessed that he had murdered his wife, although he knew, and his questioners must have known that, in wife was still, that his wife was still alive. He confessed that for years he had been in personal touch with Goldstein and had been a member of an underground organization which had included almost every human being he had ever known. Sure, it was easier to confess everything and implicate everybody. Besides, in a sense, it was all true. It was true that he had been the enemy of the party, and in the eyes of the party, there was no distinction between the thought and the deed. There were also memories of another kind. They stood out in his mind disconnectedly, like pictures with blackness all around them. He was in a cell which might have been either dark or light because he could see nothing except a pair of eyes. Near at hand, some kind of instrument was sticking slowly and regularly. The eyes grew larger and more luminous. Suddenly, he floated out of his seat, dived into the eyes, and was swallowed up. He was trapped into a chair surrounded by dials under dazzling lights. A man in a white coat was reading the dials. There was a tramp of heavy boots outside. Door chain, the the door clanked open. The waxen-faced officer marched in, followed by two guards. Room 101, said the officer. The man in the white coat did not turn round. He did not look at the windstone either. 
he was looking only at the dials. He was rolling down a mighty corridor, a kilometer wide, full of glorious golden light, roaring with laughter and shouting out confessions at the top of his voice. He was confessing everything, even the things he had succeeded in holding back under the torture. He was relating the entire history of his life to an audience who knew it already. With him were the guards, the other questioners, the men in white coats, O'Brien, Julia, Mr. Carrington, all rolling down the corridor together and shouting with laughter. Some dreadful thing which had lain embedded in the future had somehow been skipped over and had not happened. Everything was all right. There was no more pain. The last detail of his life was laid bare, understood, forgiven. He was starting up from the plank bed in the half-certainty that he had heard O'Brien's voice. All through his interrogation, although he had never seen him, he had had the feeling that O'Brien was at his elbow, just out of sight. It was O'Brien who was directing everything. It was he who set the guards onto Winston and who prevented them from killing him. It was he who decided when Winston should scream with pain, and he should have a respite when he should be fed, when he should sleep, when the drugs should be pumped into his arm. It was he who asked the questions and suggested the answers. He was the tormentor, he was the protector, he was the inquisitor, he was the friend. And once Winston could not remember whether it was in drugged sleep or in normal sleep, or even in a moment of wakefulness, a voice murmured in his ear, Don't worry, Winston, you are in my keeping. For seven years I have watched over you. Now the turning point has come. I shall save you, I shall make you perfect. He was not sure whether it was O'Brien's voice, but it was the same voice that had said to him, We shall meet in the place where there is no darkness, in that other dream seven years ago. He did not remember any ending to his interrogation. There was a period of blackness, and then the cell or room in which he now was <laughs> had gradually materialized around him. <laughs> and the room in which now was had mater <laughs> gradually materialized around him. Yes, that's how I should have read it. He was almost flat on his back and unable to move. His body was held down at every essential point. Even the back of his head was gripped in some manner. O'Brien was looking down at him gravely and rather sadly. His face, seen from below, looked coarse and worn with pouches under the eyes and tired lines from nose to chin. He was older than Winston had thought him. He was perhaps forty-eight or fifty. Under his hand there was a dial with a lever on top and figures running round the face. I told you, said O'Brien, that if we met, you'll be here. Yes, said Winston. Without any warning except a slight movement of O'Brien's hand, a wave of pain flooded his body. It was a frightening pain because he could not see what was happening, and he had the feeling that some mortal injury was being done to him. He did not know whether the thing was really happening or whether the effect was electrically produced. But his body was being wrenched out of shape. The joints were being slowly torn apart. Although the pain had brought the sweat out on his forehead, the worst of all was the fear that his backbone was about to snap. He tapped his teeth and breathed hard through his nose, trying to keep silent as long as possible. You are afraid, said O'Brien, watching his face, that in another moment something is going to break. Your special fear is that it will be your backbone. You have a vivid mental picture of the vertebrae snapping apart and the spinal fluid dripping out of them. That is what you're thinking. Is it not, Winston? Winston did not answer. O'Brien drew back the lever on the dial. The wave of pain receded almost as quickly as it had come. That was 40, said O'Brien. You can see that the numbers of this dial run up to a hundred. Will you please remember throughout our conversation that I have it in my power to inflict pain on you at any moment and to whatever degree I choose? If you tell me any lies or attempt to prevaricate in any way, 
or even fall below your usual level of intelligence, you will cry out with pain instantly. Do you understand that? Yes, said Winston. O'Brien's manner became less severe. He reset all his spectacles thoughtfully and took a pace or two up and down. When he spoke, his voice was gentle and patient. <laughs> he had the air of a doctor, a teacher, even a priest, anxious to explain and persuade rather than to punish. I am taking trouble with you, Winston, he said, because you are worth trouble. You know perfectly well what is the matter with you. You have known it for years, though you have fought against the knowledge. You are mentally deranged. You suffer from a defective memory. You are unable to remember real events, and you persuade yourself that you remember other events which never happened. Fortunately, it is curable. You have never cured yourself of it, because you did not choose to. There was a small effort of the will that you were not ready to make. Even now, I am well aware. You are clinging to your disease under the impression that it is a virtue. Now we will take an example. At this moment, which power is Oceania at war with? When I was arrested, Oceania was at war with East Asia. With East Asia, good. And Oceania has always been at war with East Asia, has it not? Winston drew in his breath. He opened his mouth to speak, and then did not speak. He could not take his eyes away from the dial. The truth, please, Winston, your truth. Tell me what you think you remember. I remember that until only a week before I was arrested, we were not at war with Eastasia at all. We were in alliance with them. The war was against Eurasia. That had lasted for four years. Before that, O'Brien stopped him with a movement of the hand. Another example, he said. Some years ago, you had a very serious delusion indeed. You believed that three men, three one-time party members named Jones, Arson, Aronson and Rutherford, men who were executed for treachery and sabotage after making the fullest possible confession, were not guilty of the crimes they were charged with. You believe that you have seen unmistakable documentary evidence proving that their confessions were false. There was a certain photograph about which you had a hallucination. You believed that you had actually held it in your hands. It was a photograph, something like this. An oblong slip of newspaper had appeared between O'Brien's fingers. For perhaps five seconds it was within the angle of Winston's vision. It was a photograph, and there was no question of its identity. It was the photograph. It was another copy of the photograph of John Aronson and Rutherford at the party function in New York, which he had changed upon 11 year, chanced upon 11 years ago and promptly destroyed. For only an instant it was before his eyes, then it was out of sight again. But he had seen it unquestionably, he had seen it. He made a desperate, agonizing effort to wrench the top half of his body free. It was impossible to move so much as a centimeter in any direction. For the moment, he had even forgotten the dial. All he wanted was to hold the photograph in his fingers again, or at least to see it. It exists, he cried. No, said O'Brien. He stepped across the room. There was a memory hole in the opposite wall. O'Brien lifted the grating. Unseen, the frail slip of paper was whirling away on the current of warm air it was vanishing in a flash of flame. O'Brien turned away from the wall. Ashes, he said, not even identifiable ashes. Dust. It does not exist. It never existed. But it did exist. It does exist. It, it exists in memory. I remember it. You remember it. I do not remember it, said O'Brien. Winston's heart sank. That was double think. He had a feeling of deadly helplessness. If he could have been certain that O'Brien was lying, it would not have seemed to matter. But it was perfectly possible that O'Brien had really forgotten the photograph, and if so, then already he would have forgotten his denial of remembering it, and forgotten the act of forgetting. Are you confused yet, by the way? <laughs> How could one be sure that it was simply trickery? Perhaps that lunatic dislocation in the mind could really happen. That was the thought that defeated him. O'Brien was looking down at him speculatively. 
More than ever, he had the air of a teacher taking pains with a wayward but promising child. There is a party slogan dealing with the control of the past, he said. Repeat it, if you please. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Repeated Winston obediently. Who controls the present controls the past, said O'Brien, nodding his head with slow approval. It is your opinion, Winston, that the past has real existence? Again, the feeling of helplessness descended upon Winston. His eyes flitted toward the dial. He not only did not know whether yes or no was the answer that would save him from pain, he did not even know which answer he believed to be the true one. O'Brien smiled faintly. You are no metaphysician, Winston, he said. Until this moment, you had never considered what it meant, what is meant by existence. I will put it more precisely. Does the past exist concretely in space? Is there somewhere or other a place, a world of solid objects where the past is still happening? No. Then where does the past exist, if at all? In records? It is written down, in records, and in the mind, in human memories, in memory, very well then. We the party control our records, and we control our memories. Then we control the past, do we not? But how can we stop people remembering things? Crying Winston, again momentarily forgetting the dial. It is involuntary, it is outside oneself. How can you control memory? You have not controlled mine. O'Brien manner, um, O'Brien's manner grew stern again. He laid his hand on the dial. On the contrary, he said, you have not controlled it. That is what has brought you here. You are here because you have failed in humility, in self-discipline. How dare you? I should play that now. You would not make the act of submission, which is the price of sanity. You prefer to be a lunatic, a minority of one. Only the disciplined mind can see reality. Winston, you believe that reality is something objective, external, existing in its own right? You also believe that the, that the nature of reality is self-evident? When you delude yourself into thinking that you see something, you assume that everyone else sees the same things as you. But I tell you, Winston, that reality is not external. Reality exists in the human mind and nowhere else. Not in the individual mind, which can make mistakes, and in any case soon perishes, only in the mind of the party, which is collective and immortal. <laughs> oh my god, he's literally telling you all the truth. It's fucking unbelievable. How can you people have read this book and not realized what you were really reading? Like, what do the gurus say? Seriously, what do the gurus They just, they're not there yet. <laughs> Seriously, though. It's so freaking bleeding. It's like, he's telling you the truth right now. Wow. Anyway, whatever the party holds to the truth is truth. It is impossible to see reality except by looking through the eyes of the party. <laughs> like, of course, he's not telling you per word, but you... Seriously. Anyway. That is the fact that you have got to relearn, Winston. It needs an act of self-destruction, an effort of the will. You must humble yourself before you can become sane. <laughs> it's like that professor who's going on about how, you know, you have to take the mystery juice, otherwise you're a coward. Like, no, the cowards are those who are taking something they don't know the ingredients of because they're so scared of something that <laughs> clearly not a problem <laughs> so it's all a matter of perspective indeed right he paused for a few moments as though to allow what he had been saying to sink in do you remember he went on writing in your diary freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two make four yes said winston o'brien held up his left hand his back toward winston with a thumb hidden and the four fingers extended. How many fingers am I holding up, Winston? Four. And if the party says that it is not four but five, then how many? Four. The word ended in a gasp of pain. The needle of the dial had shot up to 55. 
He's a nice man. The sweat has sprung out all over Winston's body. The hair tore into his lungs and issued again in deep groans. <laughs> Which even by clenching his teeth, he could not stop. <laughs> I'm laughing because I have to laugh, otherwise I'm gonna feel his pain. <laughs> it's fictitious. O'Brien watched him, the four fingers still extended. He drew back the lever. This time the pain was only slightly eased. How many fingers, Winston? Four. The needle went up to sixty. Well, six, six, six. How many fingers, Winston? Four, four. What else can I say? Four. The needle must have risen again, but he did not look at it. The heavy, stern face and the four fingers filled his vision. The fingers stood up before his eyes like pillars and almost blurry and seeming to vibrate, but unmistakably four. How many fingers, Winston? Four. Stop it, stop it. How can you go on? Four, four. How many fingers, Winston? Five, five, five. No, Winston, that is no use. You are lying. You still think there are four. How many fingers, please? Four, five, four. Anything you like, only stop it, stop the pain. Abruptly, he went sitting up with O'Brien's arm round his shoulder. His shoulders. He had perhaps lost consciousness for a few seconds. The bond that had held his body down were loosened. He felt very cold. He was shaking uncontrollably. His teeth were chattering. The tears were rolling down his cheeks. For a moment, he clung to O'Brien like a baby, curiously comforted by the heavy arm around his shoulders. He had the feeling that O'Brien was his protector, that the pain was something that came from outside, from some other source, and that it was O'Brien who would save him from it. You're a slow learner, Winston, said O'Brien gently. How can I help it? He blubbered. How can I help seeing what is in front of my eyes? Two and two are four, sometimes Winston, sometimes they are five, sometimes they are three. Sometimes they are all of them at once. You must try harder. It is not easy to become sane. He laid Winston down on the bed. The grip on his limbs tightened again, but the pain had <laughs> ebbed away and the trembling had stopped, leaving him merely weak and cold. O'Brien motioned with his head to the man in the white coat, who had stood immobile throughout the proceedings. The proceedings. The man in the white coat bent down and looked closely into Winston's eyes, felt his pulse, laid an ear against his chest, tapped here and there. Then he nodded to O'Brien. Again, said O'Brien, the pain flowed into Winston's body. The needle must be at seventy, seventy-five. He had shut his eyes this time. He knew that the fingers were still there, and still four. All that mattered was somehow to stay alive until the spasm was over. He had ceased to notice whether he was crying out or not. The pain lessened again. He opened his eyes. O'Brien had drawn back the lever. How many fingers, Winston? Four. I suppose there are four. I would see five if I could. I am trying to see five. Which do you wish, to persuade me that you see five or really to see them? Really to see them? Again, said O'Brien. Perhaps the needle was at eighteen ninety. Winston could only intermittently remember why the pain was happening. Behind his screwed-up eyelids, a forest of fingers seemed to be moving in a sort of dance, weaving in and out, disappearing behind one another and reappearing again. He was trying to count them. He could not remember why. He knew only that it was impossible to count them, and that this was somehow due to the mysterious identity between five and four. The pain died down again. When he opened his eyes, it was to find that he was still seeing the same thing. Innumerable fingers, like moving trees, were still streaming past in either direction, crossing and recrossing. He shut his eyes again. How many fingers am I holding up, Winston? I don't know. I don't know. You will kill me if you do that again. Four, five, six, you know, honestly, I don't know. Better, said O'Brien. A needle slid into Winston's arm. Almost in the same instance, a blissful, healing warmth spread all through his body. The pain was already half forgotten. 
He opened his eyes and looked up gratefully at O'Brien. At sight of the heavy, lined face, so ugly and so intelligent, his heart seemed to turn over. If he could have moved, he could have stretched out a hand and laid it on O'Brien's arm. He had never loved him so deeply as at this moment, and not merely because he had stopped the pain. The old feeling that, at the bottom, it did not matter whether O'Brien was a friend or an enemy, had come back. O'Brien was a person who could be talked to. Perhaps one did not, perhaps one did not want to be loved so much as to be understood. O'Brien had tortured him to the edge of lunacy, and in a little while it was certain he would send him to his death. It made no difference. In some sense that went deeper than friendship. They were intimates, somewhere or other, although the actual words might never be spoken. There was a place where they could meet and talk. O'Brien was looking down at him with an expression which suggested that the same thought might be in his own mind. When he spoke, it was in an easy, conversational tone. Do you know where you are, Winston? he said. I don't know. I can guess. In the Ministry of Love? Do you know how long you have been here? I don't know. Days, weeks, months? I think it is months. And why do you imagine that we bring people to this place? To make them confess? No, that is not the reason. Try again. To punish them? No, exclaimed O'Brien. His voice had changed extraordinarily, and his face had suddenly become both stern and animated. No, not merely to extract your confession, nor to punish you. Shall I tell you why we have brought you here? To cure you, to make you sane. Will you understand, Winston, that no one whom we bring to this place ever leaves our hands uncured? We are not interested in those stupid crimes that you have committed. The party is not interested in the overt act. The thought is all we care about. We do not merely destroy our enemies, we change them. Do you understand what I mean by that? He was bending over Winston. His face looked enormous because of its nearness, and hideously ugly because it was seen from below. Moreover, it was filled with a sort of <laughs> exaltation. A lunatic intensity. Again, Winston's heart shrank. If it had been possible, he would have cowered deeper into the bed. He felt certain that O'Brien was about to twist the dial out of sheer wantonness. At this moment, however, O'Brien turned away. He took a pace or two up and down, then he continued less vehemently. The first thing for you to understand is that in this place there are no martyrdoms. You have read of the religious persecutions of the past. In the Middle Ages there was the Inquisition. It was a failure. It set out to eradicate heresy and ended by perpetuating it. For every heretic it burned at the stake, thousands of others rose up. Why was that? Because the Inquisition killed its enemies in the open and killed them while they were still unrepentant. In fact, it killed them because they were unrepentant. Men were dying because they would not abandon their true beliefs. Naturally, all the glory belonged to the victim and all the shame to the inquisitor who burned them. Later, in the 20th century, there were the totalitarians, as they were called. There were the Germans, Nazis and the Russian communists. The Russians persecuted the heresy from cruelly <laughs> more cruelly than the Inquisition had done, and they imagined that they had learned from the mistakes of the past. They knew, at any rate, that one must not make martyrs. Before they exposed their victims to public trial, they deliberately set themselves to destroy their dignity. They wore them down by torture and solitude until they were despicable, cringing wrenches, confessing whatever was put into their mouth, covering themselves with abuse, accusing and sheltering behind one another, whimpering for mercy. And yet, after only a few years, the same thing had happened over again. The dead men had become martyrs and their degradation was forgotten. Once again, why was it? In the first place, because the confessions that they had made were obviously extorted and untrue. 
We do not make mistakes of that kind. All the confessions that are uttered here are true. We make them true, and above all, we do not allow the dead to rise up against us. You must stop imagining that posterity will vindicate you, Winston. Posterity will never hear of you. You will be lifted clean out from the stream of history. We shall turn you into gas and pour you into the stratosphere. Nothing will remain of you, not a name in a register, not a memory in a living brain. You will be annihilated in, in the past as well as in the future. You will never have existed. Then why bother to torture me? thought Winston with a momentary bitterness. O'Brien checked his step as though Winston had uttered the thought aloud. His large, ugly face came nearer with the eyes a little narrowed. You are thinking, he said, that since we intend to destroy you utterly, so that nothing that you say or do can make the smallest difference in that case, why do we go to the trouble of interrogating you first? That is what you were thinking, was it not? Yes, said Winston. O'Brien smiled slightly. You are a flaw in the pattern, Winston. You are a stain that must be wiped out. Did I not tell you just now that we are different from the persecutors of the past? We are not content with negative obedience, nor even with the most object, object submission. When finally you surrender to us, it must be of your own free will. We do not destroy the heretic because he resists us. So long as he resists us, we never destroy him. We convert him. We capture his inner mind. We reshape him. We burn all evil and all illusion out of him. We bring him over to our side, not in appearance, but genuinely, heart and soul. We make him one of ourselves before we kill him. Yeah, sounds like non-vegans. I grow my animals we love. I promise you when I kill them, they don't suffer. I only say you want to try on yourself. Just to prove your point. It is what would a guru say. It is intolerable to us that an erroneous thought should exist anywhere in the world, however secret and powerless it may be. Even in the instance of death, we cannot permit any deviation. In the old days, the heretic walked to the stake, still a heretic, proclaiming his heresy, exulting in it. Even the victim of the Russian purges could carry rebellion locked up in his skull as he walked down the passage waiting for the bullet. But we make the brain perfect before we blow it out. The comment of the old despotisms was thou shall not. The comment of the totalitarians was thou shall. Our comment is thou art. No one whom we bring to this place ever stands out against us. Everyone is washed clean. Even those three miserable traitors in whose innocence you once believed, Jones, Arson, and Rutherford, in the end we broke them down. I took part in their interrogation myself. I saw them gradually worn down, whimpering, groveling, weeping, and in the end it was not with pain or fear, only with penitence. By the time we had finished with them, they were only the shells of men. There was nothing left in them except sorrow for what they had done and love of Big Brother. It was touching to see how they loved him. They begged to be shot quickly so that they could die while their minds were still clean. His voice had grown almost dreamy. The exaltation, the lunatic enthusiasm was still in his face. He is not pretending, thought Winston. He is not a hypocrite. He believes every word he says. What most oppressed him was the consciousness of his own intellectual inferiority. He watched a heavy yet graceful form strolling to and fro, in and out of the range of his vision. O'Brien was a being in all ways larger than himself. There was no idea that he had ever heard that he had ever had or could have that O'Brien had not long ago known, examined and rejected. His mind contained Winston's mind, but in that case how could it be true 
that O'Brien was mad. It must be he, Winston, who was mad. O'Brien halted and looked down at him. His voice had grown stern again. Do not imagine that you will save yourself, Winston, however completely you surrender to us. No one who has once gone astray is ever spared. And even if we chose to let you leave out the natural term of your life, still you'd never escape from us. What happens to you here is forever. Understand that in advance we shall crush you down to the point from which there is no coming back. Things will happen to you from which you could not recover if you lived a thousand years. Never again will you be capable of ordinary human feeling. Everything will be dead inside you. Never again will you be capable of love or friendship or joy or living or laughter or curiosity or courage or integrity. You will be hollow. We shall squeeze you empty and then we shall fill you with ourselves. He paused and sighed to the man in the white coat. Signed, sorry, not sighed. Winston was aware of some heavy piece of apparatus being pushed into place behind his head. O'Brien had sat down beside the bed so that his face was almost on a level with Winston's. Three thousand, he said, speaking over Winston's head to the man in, white, in the white coat. Two soft pads, which felt slightly moist, clamped themselves against Winston's temples. He quailed. There was pain coming, a new kind of pain. O'Brien laid a hand reassuringly, almost kindly, on his. This time it will not hurt, he said. Keep your eyes fixed on mine. At this moment there was a devastating explosion, or what seemed like an explosion, though it was not certain whether there was any noise. There was undoubtedly a blinding flash of light. Winston was not hurt, only prostrated. Although he had already been lying on his back, when the thing happened he had a curious feeling that he had been knocked into that position. A terrific painless blow had flattened him out. Also, something had happened inside his head. As his eyes regained their focus, he remembered who he was and where he was, and recognized the face that was gazing into his own. But somewhere or other, there was a large patch of emptiness, as though a piece had been taken out of his brain. It will not last, said O'Brien. Look me in the eyes. What countries Oceania at war with? Winston thought. He knew what was meant by Oceania, and that he himself was a citizen of Oceania. He also re remembered Eurasia and East Asia, but who was at war with whom he did not know. In fact, he had not been aware that there was any war. I don't remember. Oceania is at war with East Asia. Do you remember that now? Yes. Oceania has always been at war with East Asia. Since the beginning of your life, since the beginning of the party, since the beginning of history, the war has continued without a break. Always the same war. Do you remember that? Yes. Eleven years ago you created a legend about three men who had been condemned to death for treachery. You pretended that you had seen a piece of paper which proved them innocent. No such piece of paper ever existed. You invented it and later you grew to believe it in it. You remember now the very moment at which you first invented it? Do you remember that? Yes. Just now I held up the fingers of my hand to you. You saw five fingers, do you remember that? Yes. O'Brien held up the fingers of his left hand with the thumb concealed. There are five fingers there. Do you see five fingers? Yes. And he did see them for a fleeting instant before the scenery of his mind changed. He saw five fingers and there was no deformity. Then everything was normal again and the old fear, the hatred, and the bewilderment came crowding back again. But there had been a moment he did not know how long, thirty seconds perhaps, of luminous certainty, when each new suggestion of O'Brien's had filled up a patch of emptiness and become absolute truth, and when two and two could have been three as easily as five, if that were that was needed. It had faded out before O'Brien had dropped his hand. But though he could not recapture it, he could remember it, as one remembers a vivid experience at some remote period of one's life when one was in effect a different person. You see now, said O'Brien, 
that it is at any rate possible. Yes, said Winston. O'Brien stood up with a satisfied air. Over his left, Winston saw the man in the white coat break an ampoule and draw back the plunger of a syringe. O'Brien turned to Winston with a smile. In almost the old manner, he resettled his spectacles on his nose. Do you remember writing in your diary, he said, that uh, it did not matter whether I was a friend or an enemy, since I was at least a person who understood you and could be talked to? You were right. I enjoy talking to you. Your mind appeals to me. It resembles my own mind, except that you happen to be insane. Before we bring the session to an end, you can ask me a few questions if you choose. Any question I like? Anything. He saw that Winston's eyes were upon the dial. It is switched off. What is your first question? What have you done with Julia? said Winston. O'Brien smiled again. She betrayed you, Winston. Immediately. Unreservedly. I have seldom seen anyone come over to us so promptly. You would hardly recognize if you saw her. All her rebelliousness, her deceit, her folly, her dirty-mindedness, everything has been burned out of her. It was a perfect conversion, a textbook case. You torture her? O'Brien left his unanswered. Next, next question, he said. Does Big Brother exist? Of course he exists. The party exists. Big Brother is the embodiment of the party. Does he exist in the same way as I exist? You do not exist, said O'Brien. Once again, the sense of helplessness assailed him. He knew, or he could imagine, the arguments which uh, proved his own existence. Non-existence, sorry. But they were nonsense. They were only a play on words. Did not the statement, you do not exist, contain a logical absurdity? But what use was it to say so? His mind shriveled as he thought of the unanswerable, mad arguments with which O'Brien would demolish him. I think I exist, he said wearily. I am conscious of my own identity. I was born, and I shall die. I have arms and legs. I occupy a particular point in space. No other solid object that can, 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 occupy, can occupy the same point simultaneously. In that sense, does Big Brother exist? It is on no, of no importance. He exists. Will Big Brother ever die? Of course not. How could he die? Next question. Does the Brotherhood exist? That, Winston, you will never know. If we choose to set you free when we have finished with you, and if you leave to be 90 years old, still you will never learn whether the answer to that question is yes or no. As long as you leave, it will be an unsolved riddle in your mind. Winston lay silent. His breast rose and fell a little faster. He still had not asked the question that had come into his mind first. He had got to ask it, and yet it was as though his tongue would not utter it. There was a trace of amusement in O'Brien's face. Even his spectacles seemed to wear an ironical gleam. He knows, thought Winston suddenly. He knows what I'm going to ask. At the thought, the words burst out of him. What is in Rome 101? The expression on O'Brien's face did not change. He answered drearily. You know what is in Rome 101, Winston. Everyone knows what is in Rome 101. He raised a finger to the man in the white coat. Evidently, the session was at the end. A needle jerked into Winston's arm. He sank almost instantly into deep sleep. Whew. And that is the end of the second chapter. My god, it's becoming really dark. Dark and dark, eh? Oh, how sad. Anyway, we're gonna read more of that later on. Um, hopefully I'll feel better later so I can read some more of this very heavy stuff. <sighs> but it's really funny. All in all, I mean, it's, it's really pretty obvious. A lot of things. So nice guy, that O'Brien.
There you go. A little tapping to send you off and relax. And remember, if uh, you get stressed out, you can just stop when you hear stuff if you're on the podcast. Otherwise, you can just watch a video of the tapping and that will work. And stretch, and stretch, and stretch, and do the left, and do the right. I need to do this. I feel so much better. That's why I want to get one of those bars where I can hang up like this and then, you know, we can exercise as well. But it's really nice for the spine where we hang ourselves with our arms and, and fling around. I, I, I like exercise. Exercise feels good. I know when we're in pain, yeah, that's when the problem, but that's when we do the more gentle kind, I mean, right? So, let's dance! <laughs> well, I will see you in the next one, guys. I'm gonna let you go because it was pretty long already, so I'm gonna let you go. And uh, we'll see you in uh, the next chapter, see what happens to poor Winston, eh? Poor bastard, seriously. <laughs>